Right. So could you introduce yourself, please, and uh, let us know how you uh, ended up in Morocco? Okay. Well, I'm Kevin Barrett, and I have a background in literature, uh, English, French, and Arabic, with an area of studies focus on Morocco. And I was teaching in various American universities, uh, University of Wisconsin and Edgewood College of Madison in 2006, when I was well known for doing teach-ins on 9-11. I was part of the 9-11 Truth Movement. And in 2006, the perpetrators or their cover-up team decided to push back. So they uh, attacked me as a way of trying to scare away the other academicians from looking into the 9-11 issue. And that gave me my 15 minutes of fame, which stretched on for six months. And when it was all over, I was permanently, largely unemployable in the American Academy. I didn't have tenure, so that's why uh, I was not, I couldn't be rehired. Uh, So since then, I've been uh, writing books. Sorry, Kevin, just to to explain that a little bit, it sounds to me like a form of blacklisting. Yes, of course. Yeah, it's it's informal, but uh, it's on the record that the University of Wisconsin-Madison couldn't rehire me because of pressure from the administration, and that was because of pressure from from donors and perhaps the government. And it's also on the record from a whistleblower that the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater withdrew a tenure-track job that was uh, earmarked for me in humanities and Islam and returned a very large sum of money to the federal government rather than hire me. Uh, And then the same thing happened at the University of Illinois, apparently, although we don't have whistleblower going into the details on that. So uh, that plus the fact that I applied for various jobs after all of this and uh, didn't get much of a response for obvious reasons that, you know, Google my name and I'm a a big 9-11 truther. Uh, That forced me out of the American Academy. I could have taught abroad, but instead I decided to stay in the U.S., And uh, I worked hard in the 9-11 Truth Movement for several years and kind of morphed into doing alternative media like you do, Tony. And um, I've I've been on the outs, of course, with the American establishment really since I was in high school and discovered the problem around the JFK assassination. But that uh, that problem got worse after 9-11. And um, finally, I got tired enough of the United States that when my wife suggested moving somewhere with better weather, such as Sadia, Morocco, her favorite uh, childhood beach town, I said, sure. So, or Waha in Arabic. So we, uh, we moved here in late July. The 911 Truth, I think, you know, it's worth dwelling on that a little bit because there were various uh, movements that kind of came along, weren't there, that tried to destabilize the 911 Truth. In other words, we're talking here about real conspiracy theories. These are kooky theories dreamt up and then kind of injected in uh, to the 911 Truth movement. Would you, do you want to talk about that? Because this is always, uh, I think, it's so important to not to, dis- to discredit 9-11 truth. It's a, a very, very important. And of course, it, you know, it, the whole thing really was a scam, but there was a, a, various a, attempts to derail just using disinformation. Yes, I think uh, the 9-11 truth movement was especially vulnerable to those kinds of COINTELPRO style efforts to stir up dissension and to smear the movement because the reality of 9-11 was so bizarre already 
you know, I mean, it's it's hard enough to convince people that they found a way to smash planes into buildings that did not involve hijackings by radical Muslims. And they blew up these buildings when they were full of people and then falsely claimed that the plane crashes and fires had brought the buildings down. And then there was, of course, the third building, Building 7, that was never hit by a plane, never suffered significant damage from the collapsing towers, had only very modest office fires, and yet uh, collapsed at near free fall, actually full free fall for more than two and a half seconds straight into its own footprint in an obvious controlled demolition. Uh, so all of those things are very well attested, but they sound pretty bizarre already. And I think, you know, once you've faced the fact that 9-11 was an outrageous fraud, then uh, you kind of come unmoored a bit from reality and are willing to entertain all sorts of possibilities. And that makes it easy for the COINTELPRO people to send in the Flat Earth Movement and to get people fighting between, you know, planers and no planers and uh, arguing about the modalities of the controlled demolitions. We all agree they were explosive demolitions, but did they use nanothermite? Did they use conventional explosives? Did they use nuclear weapons? Maybe something more exotic. And so they love to get people fighting about that stuff because then everybody who's not involved in the truth movement looks at the truthers and says, those people are crazy. I don't want anything to do with them. Uh, and I think that uh, did have a lot to do with the fact that the 9-11 truth movement was unable to radically change the world like we had hoped that it might. But well, I, I think, think it did. Uh, you know what? I think it did. I think there's quite a lot of people out there that were particularly those that are, have got their radar scanners up. I can remember, I think it would be in 20, um, 2021 or 2011, we were out in the leafleting in the centre here in Bristol. Uh, about 9-11 and I remember someone coming over and saying oh don't I don't want to leaflet about 9-11 uh, saying well look, we don't actually agree with and and, and eventually it as it turned out this chap uh, didn't believe in 9-11 but he'd never met anybody else and never dared to speak to anybody else about it and so he was overjoyed to find people who were questioning it like he'd questioned it he'd obviously stu seen stuff online but he was uh, you know nervous to bring it up with his friends and family and that sort of thing so I think there is a sort of um, strength that the actual truth has almost above and below everything else. So when there's these kind of psyops and lies um, that uh, that that uh, the fact that there is a 9-11 truth movement is actually really quite important um, to to make sure that the we, we sort of holding the line of truth to a certain extent. And, and obviously the the uh, benefits of it. Um, you know, were military and uh, the the invasion of Afghanistan, subsequently Iraq, all these other kinds of invasions were um, cashed in on because of the so-called, uh, you know, Arabic 9-11 uh, attacks. But anyway, look, let's let's just see where this has all moved on to. We've had all these various invasions, the overthrowing of Gaddafi in Libya, the civil war in Syria. Now, now Kevin, everything's moved on to um to to gaza particularly to the palestine israel conflict and i know you're a muslim aren't you can you say something about how you came to that faith and um you know through 9-11 and, and you know and also through your understanding of geopolitics sure well I, I was born in a family of lapsed unitarians which is uh, severely lapsed because the unitarians are already uh, pretty much lapsed from any uh real um theology or or even practice other than singing kumbaya every sunday uh, and so I grew up in a secular family 
and had spiritual experiences as a teenager, explored uh, various things, including Buddhism. Uh, and, and then in my mid-30s, I discovered the traditionalist movement, which was founded by René Guénon, and it became very influential in religious studies. And uh, its founder, Guénon, and its, most of its other founders ended up converting to Islam. They were Westerners, uh, primarily Europeans, who converted to Islam, uh, believing that the uh, Islamic tradition is the best preserved of the authentic revelations. These uh, traditionalists are basically perennialists who believe there's a perennial truth that manifests itself differently in different religious traditions. And it, these authentic revelations that give rise to authentic religious traditions have been you know, all around uh, the whole world. They've, they've been going on forever. Um, but Islam uh, is the best preserved of these revelations, both in the sense of the material that was revealed to the Prophet Muhammad, peace upon him, uh, 1400 some years ago, is uh, has been relatively well preserved. And then also uh, the people uh, who are practicing Islam today are still practicing it somewhat better. They've, they've preserved it a little bit better than uh, people in other traditions. And so I encountered that perspective when looking at the traditionalists and ended up agreeing with the contention of Islam that it is indeed the, the best preserved uh, of the traditions and that it does correct uh, errors that crept into Judaism and Christianity. So I, I came to it basically through my reason, but then also partly through, through intuition uh, and some spiritual experiences as well. So what do you make of what's been going on in Gaza? Most people looking at this absolutely horrified. Uh, and we do see um, a large proportion of the press, particularly the Murdoch press, uh, really doing everything they can, bending over backwards to defend the actions of uh, Netanyahu and the Israeli state. Yeah, it's absolutely disgusting. You know, this is the most in-your-face transparent genocide in human history. You can argue about what really happened in the Armenian genocide between Armenia and Turkey. You can even argue whether that really was a genocide, as some Turks do. Uh, you can make the same kinds of arguments around the Jewish Holocaust of World War II. And indeed, the Holocaust revisionists have a surprisingly good case for many of their contentions. And so you can, you can argue, tell the cows come home about these horrific uh, mass killings and ethnic cleansings that have defaced the history of humanity. But you can't really argue about what's going on in Gaza now because it's all being televised. Uh, the, the, the genocide is on television uh, and it's being covered nonstop, even though the Israelis have murdered more than 100 journalists already and counting, uh, trying to make sure it doesn't get reported. Israel is clearly deliberately targeting civilians, civilian in infrastructure, deliberately well, destroying people's fresh water supplies, blocking food supplies. Uh, blocking fuel supplies in the middle of winter, and then blowing up the housing. They've blown up the majority of the housing in Gaza. And they are very clear in their intention to murder uh, as many as they can and expel the rest. That's genocide. Uh, that's the most clear case of genocide under international law that has ever existed. And the, the Israelis are currently in court uh, being uh, prosecuted by South Africa for genocide. We're expecting a preliminary ruling on the emergency measures that may be ordered on Friday. 
so every one of these Murdoch papers, every one of these journalists, every one of these people who are defending this genocide are guilty of complicity in that genocide. And, you know, theoretically, they all are subjected to the legal punishments for mass murder, conspiracy to commit mass murder and genocide, uh, which would be life in prison in many jurisdictions and death in others. Well, we're seeing, though, aren't we, amazingly, uh, many Zionists actually out on the streets of Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, particularly Tel Aviv um, and Haifa as well, by the way, uh, even even campaigning with Palestinians. Many Zionists believe that Netanyahu has is in the process of completely destroying the, their dream. Well, I understand why they think that, because this has been a complete disaster for Israel. And one of the reasons Israel is pursuing this horrific and genocidal and indeed self-destructive policy is because Netanyahu can't stop or he might not only be thrown out of office, but he might go to prison. Basically, as soon as that war emergency is done, then Netanyahu faces his legal reckoning for corruption cases. Uh, and once he's out of power, he's going to be very, very vulnerable. So he needs to stay in power. And the way he can stay in power is as a war kind of commander in chief. And so his interests are overruling the interests of Israel in its own self-preservation. And it's possible that the Palestinian resistance calculated this when they thought about what they would be doing on October 7th. Uh, that plan may indeed have been informed by the fact that they saw this vulnerability, that Netanyahu was in a position where he would pursue a self-destructive course. Uh, I think they, they thought it likely that you know, Israel would go into Gaza and the Palestinian resistance has built uh, pretty powerful fortifications in Gaza in the form of a tunnel network that was designed to basically you know, pull the Israelis into a sort of Chinese finger trap where they can't possibly win. And so all Israel has been able to do is mass murder civilians and get itself prosecuted for genocide and suddenly wake up most of the world uh, to the crimes of Israel and uh, and arguably to change the world's view of of uh, Jews as a group that you know, Jews have been enjoying this kind of impunity since World War II. And, you know, throughout all of history up until World War II, Jews were looked on as having very problematic characteristics by virtually every people that they'd ever been in contact with. And then with uh, the Holocaust narrative that came out of World War II, suddenly Jews enjoyed total impunity and they've been running roughshod ever since and took over the United States, basically. Uh, and now with this genocide, suddenly uh, huge numbers of people are not only rethinking Israel versus Palestine, but they're also noticing that this ridiculous uh uh, they, uh, the, this, this ridiculous uh, impunity that, that Jewish power has been enjoying now since World War II uh, needs to be critiqued and taken down. Well, and so, I mean, so a, I lot think, of the, a lot of the Jews that we speak to would argue that it's not Jewish power you're dealing with there, that the Zionism is a kind of hijacking of the Jewish faith and that they are part of the fight back against it. Here, I mean, say, for example, just here in, in Bristol, many Jews just want nothing whatsoever to do with this. Uh, um, you know, this it, don't, don't you think that that's actually what's happened? I mean, the most normal Jews were killed in the Second World War. They were put into labor camps, etc., by the Nazis because they weren't Zionists. That was the only 
that was a big sorting out that went out, went on, and Hitler was doing the sorting. And if you weren't a Zionist Jew, then you were going to be put in the mincing machine. Well, that, uh, yes, I think that's true, Tony. But I think that that illustrates a kind of dynamic within the Jewish culture. And you know, the, I, I think that Jewish culture has a very powerful ethnocentric tribal dimension. Now, different people react to that differently. Um, American culture also has an ethnocentric tribal dimension, and I reacted to that uh, by ultimately becoming a rebel against it. Uh, I was so disgusted by America's actions in Vietnam and other uh, similar actions around the world that I learned about later, and by the unsolved uh, coup d'etat of the Kennedy assassination and things like that when I was young, that I became very much uh, a rebel against American tribal power. Well, in the Jewish tribe, you have similar dynamics where you have some people who become immensely chauvinistic and tribal, and when they pick up the New York Times in the morning, all they care about is what's good for the Jews. And my Jewish friends, many of them had you know, somebody in their family like that. And then there's also somebody else in the family who's probably like, oh man, rolls their eyeballs at Uncle Jaime who cares about what's good for the Jews. And has no use for this, you know, tribal dimension of uh, of Jewish culture. So there, there's that you know, dynamic within the Jewish uh, people. And so many Jews are aghast right now at the extreme Zionist tribalism of Netanyahu. And I think many others, even some fairly tribal Jews who are brought up to believe that everybody hates them for no good reason, which is, of course, ridiculous, uh, and wants to throw them into the sea and throw them in gas chambers and things like that. I mean, these people are traumatized, a lot of them, uh, certainly the Israeli Jews more than anyone. And so I think even some of the people who are somewhat traumatized into believing that, that you know, the world hates the Jews and persecutes them, those some of those Jewish people, too, are, are horrified by this because they understand that this is going to take away that immunity that Jews have enjoyed since World War II, which has allowed, once again, I say, has allowed Jews to take over the United States. Now, the Jews who've taken over the United States, many of them are liberal. Many of them are not fanatic Zionists like Netanyahu. But there's an ethnocentric kind of ethnic nepotism that goes on in which ethnic groups vie with each other for control. The United States was dominated by Protestants or WASPs up until World War II. And since World War II, the dominant, uh, most powerful ethnic group in the United States has become Jews. We can see this in, in I, the Ivy League admissions where uh, Jews basically took over the Ivy League institutions. And now that's why we have so many of these cases where Ivy League presidents are being fired for criticizing Israel and so on. Uh, Ron Unz has proven that Jews are grossly overrepresented in Ivy League institutions based on their test scores, grades, etc. That is uh, probably, you know, nine out of 10 Jews in the Ivy League should never have been admitted uh, because there are white non-Jews who score higher on all of the application tests and, and grades and so on. But there, there's been a very powerful bias towards admitting uh, Jews in disproportionate numbers to their abilities in the Ivy League now for, for decades. Uh, and that's the reason that happened. Well, that's just one of the cases of American Jews becoming the dominant ethnic group. They also totally dominate the media. Uh, Hollywood being the most extreme example, and are grossly disproportionate at the high levels in the financial world. Now, you're not supposed to say this. It's said to be anti-Semitic to say these things, but they are true. And I don't understand why you would call somebody a bigot if they speak the truth about this. 
you weren't a bigot if you said that Protestants dominated the United States in, say, 1910. So why are you a bigot if you make the same observation about Jews dominating the United States now, which they obviously do? I mean, look at Biden's minion. You know, the, the Jewish newspapers say Biden's cabinet has enough Jews to make up a minion. It's Biden is totally surrounded by Jews and by people with Jewish spouses. Uh, and that's one of the reasons that Biden has been dragged kicking and screaming into complicity uh, in this genocide. Yeah, so let's, let's just return to that. Why uh, do you think uh, it's been so uh, horrific? It is it is being painted, isn't it, as a Jewish versus Muslim conflict, although there's lots of people of uh, Christian faith and no faith that have been all caught up in this. Uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, the Israeli state was actually founded by secular Jews, not by religious Jews. So there is an attempt to turn it into a big religious conflict. Uh, Kevin, can you just say something about that and and whether you think that's played into why it's been so long lasting, this particular one, and uh, so horrific with something like 100 Palestinians uh, being killed for every, the kill ratio is a very cold way to look at these things, but about 100 Palestinians for every Israeli dead. Right. And, and the Palestinians are virtually all civilians, the great majority women and children whereas the Israeli dead are mostly uh, troops. Even on October 7th, uh, about half of the people who died were Israeli uh, armed forces or police, and another um, significant proportion were security guards and other armed people. The kibbutzes are full of, uh, of people who, who carry arms. All Israeli Jews are trained in arms. Uh, they all go through the military except for uh, for the kibbutzim. So, or I'm sorry, except, except for the, uh, the, um, the religious Jews who get exemptions. In any case, uh, the Palestinians have been targeting the Israeli military from day one. That's what they did on October 7th. They did try to, they grabbed some civilian hostages, but the killings of civilians on October 7th almost entirely came from the IDF. The Israeli military uh, slaughtered its own people according to the Hannibal Directive which uh, tells the Israeli military to kill both hostages and hostage takers in order to prevent the political liability of having to bargain for hostages. So that horrific massacre that we saw, we saw the aftermath of the massacre on October 7th, that massacre was perpetrated by the Israeli armed forces. The uh, Palestinians had attacked Israeli military targets and in some cases tried to grab civilian hostages. Uh, today, it's the same thing. The, the Israelis are just bombing people's houses, uh, killing women and children, bombing hospitals, uh, bom bombing ambulances, bombing refugee centers. They just killed hundreds of people in a, a United Nations uh, refugee camp uh, today. Uh, and so it's, the Israelis are committing terrorism, which means deliberately targeting civilians. The Palestinians aren't. The Palestinians are targeting the Israeli military, and they're coming out of their tunnels and blowing up Israeli tanks, often sprinting to the tank and applying the explosive from distance zero. Uh, they're fighting incredibly bravely, uh, fighting against a, a truly evil occupation, and indeed an evil people. The Israeli people, uh, Israeli Jews, by a, a ratio of well over 90% support this genocide, making all of them complicit in genocide and subjected again to life in prison or the death penalty. That's more than 90% of Israeli Jews. And yet uh, the Palestinian resistance is not targeting unarmed Israeli Jews. It's targeting the Israeli military. The, the difference in moral stature between these two sides is so extreme. This is, there's never been a more clear cut case of a battle between good versus evil. 
it's a uh, thing fascinating to look at this as um uh, as a potential for wider conflict uh, it, many of these arab countries are looking in at this and saying well uh we don't want to get involved right now because we know the israelis have kind of set a trap here really that they want a wider conflict because this will suit netanyahu uh, and also also suit netanyahu for that wider conflict might maybe to not go well for israel because the americans will of course come in in their defense so there is a definite incentive. We we keep hearing from Netanyahu that he wants a war with Iran as well. Uh, and and so what do you make make out of this potential for a much wider conflict, maybe even bringing in the United States, which is in the region anyway, bringing in the Russians, which is in the region anyway, and also the Chinese potentially into a third world war? Well, there is that potential. And Netanyahu seems to welcome it because I think Netanyahu sees, again, that when this war ends, he's toast. It's the end of his career and he could end up in prison. So he needs to flee forward into an ever bigger war. He can't allow this thing to end. And if it becomes a bigger war, I think he's gambling on the possibility that he would get what uh, what he wants. That is that Israel would be able to uh, essentially ethnically cleanse the Palestinians, murder or expel the millions of Palestinians who are in historic Palestine right now, and possibly even murder or expel the non-Jewish uh, Israeli citizens, uh, 20% of whom are indeed uh, Palestinian Arabs. So uh, I think Netanyahu welcomes the pro- prospect of a wider war. He believes that he could use his political influence to drag the United States into it on his behalf, and the wider war would give him the cover to finish the Holocaust of Palestine, uh, finish the job, clean out Palestine, get rid of all of the Palestinians, the the millions who remain. And I I hope that the rest of the world sees how crazy that is and will make sure that that doesn't happen. And the you know the axis of resistance has been very careful to calibrate its response at a level that would prevent that from happening so far. Uh, and so it's really it, it depends on just how far Netanyahu will go with his uh, provocations. But it's a very, very serious danger. And uh, even though I'm disgusted with all of the Israeli Jews who are in favor of this genocide, some of those same Israeli Jews do recognize that Netanyahu is a loose cannon and needs to be taken down. And I hope they succeed in getting rid of him, because if not, uh, that. World War Three that you spoke of could easily break out. So we're also in the background of all of this. We've got the um, uh, the movement of accelerationism, which is, uh, I mean, you know, easy, the easier term to use is Armageddonism, really. The idea that actually precipitating the end of the world is an aim in itself uh, because such a massive conflagration uh, some people believe that they could control the outcome of that. And so there seems to be being a push in the background to all of this. We've got the, you know, so we've got the, the, the genocide going on, the potential for a wider war. We've got a movement, a philosophical movement um, of accelerationism, trying to push this kind of thing. Uh, and uh, we've also got the um, letter of Albert Pike, which I find fascinating revisiting this idea that uh, the First World War was there to clear the Ottomans out. Well, Allenby, Allenby did that, and the week he'd finished the job, World War One finished. 
Um, then the Second World War, uh, in order to install the Israeli state in Palestine, and uh, a Third World War, which is, uh, this is what Pike says, he's a, a senior Freemason in, in the 1870s uh, in, in the United States, says that that's what we should do. He's basically um, egging everybody on to do this in the future. So, first of all, what do you make of the, the, the whole um, Pike letter and whether that's uh, actually the plan that's being operated over these hundreds of years and, you know, the, a very long period, many, many decades uh, to create this Zionist state and use it to fuel a third world war? Uh, and uh, and secondly, the accelerationists, Kevin. Well, I, I think that Albert Pike in these alleged quotes where, where he uh, talked about uh, the world wars in a, such a way that looking back now, it looks as if he was forecasting those things accurately. Uh, whether or not that's true, and it very well may be, I don't know. But in, in any case, the Freemasonic movement or parts of it anyway, have indeed been interested in rebuilding the temple. And this notion of rebuilding Solomon's temple has been around for a long time. Some believe that the the Jewish element that uh, would become Zionism was responsible for creating Freemasonry. And the reason that the Freemasons have this same obsession with tearing down the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is the Islamic world's oldest and greatest architectural monument, and uh, and it's the symbol of Islamic spirituality and ecumenicism, and then tearing that down, putting up the uh, blood sacrifice temple, that this idea uh, starts with a kind of radical messianic millenarian current in Zionism, which has bled over into Satanism in the cases like Shabtai Zvi and Jacob Frank. And then these, uh, that, that element of the Messianic uh, Jews uh, managed to brainwash Christians into accepting this through Freemasonry, which was basically a uh, tool to try to undermine Christianity. And so I think we are seeing uh, a satanic spinoff from uh, messianic millenarian Judaism, uh, that that uh, satanic spinoff, which doesn't represent Orthodox Judaism by any means, but does, I think today probably represents the majority of people who think of themselves as Jews, whether ethnic or religious Jews. I think that that satan satanic movement to uh, attack the Holy Land and commit genocide and spill oceans of blood in the Holy Land in order to put up a blood sacrifice temple and uh, and destroy the symbol of ecumenical Islamic spirituality. I mean, that's a satanic project. So Zionism is a satanic project from day one, and it's driven by uh, a satanic spinoff from Messianic Judaism. So what about these accelerationists? Who are they and what part do they play? The word accelerationism has been used for different groups I think we've heard of it in the United States. There are some supposedly sort of alt-right or you know, right-wing racialist groups that think that the only way that they're going to turn America into the white paradise that they wish it were is to have a big race war so they can kill all the non-white people or expel them. And to have that happen, they need a, a big war. So they're going to accelerate towards a big war. And then there are others who, for whatever, they maybe they, they want the American empire to end. And so they think a big war will be a good way to end it. 
And the extreme example of accelerationists would be the people like some of these crazy uh, evangelical American Christians who think that the best way to bring Jesus back would be to commit abominations and spill oceans of blood in the Holy Land. And that will piss him off enough, I guess. So, you know, like the, the old uh, T-shirt said, Jesus is coming. And boy, is he pissed. So, you know, in, in the American sense, not the British sense, of course. <laughs> and uh, so, so these accelerationists imagine that having a huge holy war will somehow bring back Jesus, uh, which, of course, is completely insane and shows that they are under the influence of the, the Satanism I just spoke of. Uh, yeah, it's it's fascinating. I think this uh, focus on the church, um, sorry, not the church, the uh, the the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Third Temple. Uh, do you want to say something about that? Because I can remember reading about um, the very. I mean, this is a hundred years before here in the UK, uh, Freemasonry officially appeared in the uh, mid 1600s. Uh, there was uh, um, a ritual which Cromwell apparently took a load of MPs through uh, and parliamentarians. Uh, these are the ones that weren't uh, purged uh, in Pride's purge, that is to say, the ones that weren't gotten rid of before he decided to have his vote about whether or not to try the king and execute the king. And um, that was all um, around this idea of a, a ruin of the of Solomon's temple. So there seems to be uh, you know, this goes back a hell of a long way. This idea of we want a project to rebuild Solomon's Temple, and maybe what they didn't even tell these people back in the 17th century was, well, in order to do that, we're going to have to demolish one of the most holy shrines in Islam. Because it it seems to me that this is the plan, Kevin. Yes, and uh, I think we should note that I think the reason that the Satanists kind of picked up where the Jews left off—that is that this satanic project to commit abominations in the Holy Land grows out of Judaism and not Christianity and Islam, is that Messianic millenarian Judaism is already pretty messed up. You know, it calls for a Messiah who will be a military conqueror. The reason that the Jewish authorities didn't accept Jesus as Messiah is that Jesus was not a military conqueror who subjugated the Goyim, that is the non-Jewish tribes, to the Jews. So the, this kind of mainstream, uh, traditional Jewish view of the Messiah that they're waiting for is that he will be a military conqueror who will subjugate all of the non-Jews to the Jews and rule the world from Jerusalem. And the Jews will all have hundreds or even thousands, I forget how many Goyim slaves, that's mainstream Judaism. That's the that's the the mainstream Jewish tradition, which is already pretty bad. And so now you can imagine that a Satanist will say, "Yeah, you know, that's because you know if if your Messiah is somebody like that, you're already really a Satanist without saying so." And I, I guess you know the Jewish authorities have various ways of explaining how this type of military conquering racist Messiah who puts them on top and makes everybody else their slave is really a good guy and they're good people too and they're not satanists I, but yeah so i, I mean a lot of this a lot of, yeah a lot of these discussions are around uh, different interpretations of eschatology um this concept of the end of the world as prophesied in the bible um and i'm not sure you mean you're you're much better versed in i'm sure in uh, looking at the islamic tradition but i noticed recently 
uh, one of these uh, US pastors, John MacArthur, came up with a a very um, clarion call saying that uh, the Mahdi, which is the united uniting force of Islam in Islamic eschatology, is the Antichrist, he says. So this will be the Antichrist. So there seems to be a bit of contesting going on already as to who's going to be who uh, in this final Armageddon battle. Yeah, this notion that we're getting from Zionists and Satanists that the Mahdi would be the Antichrist is rather hilarious because obviously these people haven't gone to kindergarten yet uh, and learned that the Jewish Messiah is the reason that the Jews are still waiting for a Messiah is that they rejected and then some say crucified Jesus. And I think we can all agree that either they crucified Jesus or they tried to crucify Jesus. And, you know, the that's a long discussion between Christian and Muslim uh, scripture, scriptural interpretations. But in any case, okay, so the Jews uh, have rejected Jesus with very few exceptions. Uh, the Muslims accept Jesus, accept Jesus as a very holy, special holy prophet, the Ruh al-Qudus, the Holy Spirit. God breathed his, his breath into Jesus, uh, and we accept the Immaculate Conception and basically accept Jesus's teachings. And pretty much the Christians and the Muslims are totally on the same page with Jesus's birth, Jesus's teachings. And uh, the, the one point of difference would be the significance of the alleged crucifixion and so on and so forth. But in any case, so Muslims are pro-Christ. Uh, Christians are pro-Christ. Jews are anti-Christ. So obviously the Jews who've rejected Jesus and are waiting for a military conqueror messiah who will enslave the world to them are the ones who are on the side of antichrist muslims who like christians love and adore and venerate jesus are not and in the muslim eschatology the uh, uh, uh the mahdi will be with working with jesus and you know people have different views of precisely how that could play out but the whole point of the Mahdi is to usher in the return of Jesus. Every Muslim accepts that Jesus is the one and only Messiah, and it is his return that we're waiting for, and the Mahdi is simply his helper. So this notion that the Mahdi would be the Antichrist is Zionist propaganda designed to obscure the reality that Judaism is an Antichrist religion and that Islam, like Christianity, is a pro-Christ religion. Well, it's interesting you say that because most Christians... Uh, and many Jews would see Christianity and Islam uh, and, and sorry and Judaism uh, say Judaism and Christianity as one following on naturally from the other. Well, obviously, the prophets who are today considered the Jewish prophets because most Christians know about them through the Torah uh, are clearly part of this tradition. Of, Jew, of, of Jesus's people. And so in that sense, the what, what we would call the pre-Jesus Jewish uh, tradition is indeed the tradition that you know, gave birth to Jesus. And of course, the Quran also talks about that tradition. The prophet who's most uh, mentioned in the Quran is Moses, peace upon him, and uh, David and Solomon and, and uh, Job and, uh, and Jacob, uh, and Joseph, all, all of these Jewish prophets who are in the Torah uh, also appear in the, in the Quran. 
So the I think the the Christian idea that somehow Judaism is closer to Christianity than Islam is is completely crazy. And I don't think that Christians ever had that idea until their culture was basically taken over by Jews, who then used their control of the propaganda and the money and the power to enforce that view on Christians. And, and this began with the Rothschilds uh, funding uh, the, the career of the, uh, the, the um, Cyrus Schofield, who allegedly uh, Rothschild or Rothschild-linked money funded the career of, of this two-bit medicine man uh, preacher named Cyrus P. Schofield, uh, a snake oil salesman, if there ever was one, who was used as the front man for a Zionist rewriting of the Bible or producing an annotated Bible to basically try to you know, bring Christians into this sort of satanic Zionist interpretation of the Bible. So, yeah, the, re the, the back, you know, if we go back before this emergence of Judaism as, you know, the, the most powerful uh, force in the so-called Christian world. We go back to back when the Christians were actually Christians and ruled by Christians rather than by Jews. And at that time, uh, Christians would have rejected Judaism even more than they rejected Islam. And indeed they did. Yeah, but I mean, if you go, go back into um, the Old Testament, you'll find a tremendous amount of um, giving of land to the Jews by God. I mean, this is, it's not as if Netanyahu has just uh, decided, well, I mean, I don't care what the Bible says. I'm just going to pretend it says that the land is mine. There is most definitely an attempt to give that land. Uh, which is, you know, the bulk of Palestine now to the Jews by God in the Old Testament. So, I mean, it, it, it may be that um, uh, that the Palestinians are not the Amalekites, which is one of the things that Netanyahu is trying to say they are. Those Amalekites at the time uh, being a Canaanite faith that some believe were practicing child sacrifice. So obviously that wasn't really appropriate for them to... Um, accept being taken over by them at the time um and and actually what we're seeing now kevin in a way is is almost like uh you know worship of baal or baal by netanyahu with all these children being sacrificed so uh what what do you make of these these old biblical interpretations because it's certainly not the case that that god on various occasions didn't say that this should be land that the jews own and control well, I translated a book called From Yahweh to Zion by a French historian, Dr. Laurent Guyenot, which goes deeply into the history of the Jewish people and the Jewish holy book, the Torah. And it strongly critiques the Torah. And I know this is hard for, for Christians who have somehow been convinced that the Torah is an inerrant scripture just like the uh, the Gospels. But my view of it, having read the Torah, and, and I read it actually straight through in uh, 2008, I believe, is that it's uh, wonderful literature and storytelling. But anybody who accepts the Torah as we have it today as inerrant scripture is a lunatic. <laughs> you know, it portrays God, the supreme, ineffable, creative force that gives rise to and permeates the universe, as a psychopathic patriarch named Yahweh, 
who plays favorites and usually plays favorites by selecting the most psychopathic or criminal of his children to favor. As when, for example, you know, Jacob, this is the Jacob in the Torah, not the real Jacob, of course, uh, steals the birthright of Esau. He's a criminal, uh, but God rewards him. <laughs> and, uh, and there are so many cases like that. Uh, so the Torah, as it stands today, cannot possibly be a divine scripture. And indeed, the Quran and the Islamic tradition tell us that the Torah that we have today is uh, was changed. That humans with their egos and their desires uh, changed it to fit their egos and their desires. And it's pretty obvious what egos and desires it was changed to fit. The Jewish tribal elite, the Jewish uh, tribal uh, you know, intellectual uh, and power elite has been profiting by traumatizing and brainwashing the majority of Jewish people from time immemorial. This, you know, when they take these Israeli kids to Auschwitz and terrorize them and say that nice old Polish man on that park bench wants to throw you into gas chambers, this is just an extreme example of the kind of tribal trauma that has been inflicted on Jewish children from time immemorial. You know, there are people who shall dwell apart. In order to make them dwell apart, their elites have ter terrorized them and traumatized them by making them hate and fear the Goyim, the other people. And uh, so I, I think that there's a huge problem in the Torah itself and the way the Torah has been used by this Jewish uh, tribal elite. Uh, and that has given rise to all of these problems we've seen from the crucifixion plot against Jesus to the uh, genocidal uh, theft of Palestine. So where's a good place to follow your work these days, Kevin? Uh, the best place is my Substack, which is kevinbarrett.substack.com. And then I also have a column at the UNZ Review, unz.com. 